Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest for you, and he has been on the podcast before, but he just did a little mini episode in our Botching Afghanistan series. But we're welcoming back Pastor Ryan Visconti. So he is the lead pastor at Generation Church, which has two locations out there in Arizona. Now, here's the thing about this guy is I got sent a you know sermon from one of our followers, right? And so this is a fan of our show that's just like, hey, you got to check this out. And, and sometimes it's really hard to get to that because it's like, Oh gosh, you're sending me like an hour long video. Like I don't really have time to look at it, but for whatever reason, I looked at this one because a guy was talking about abortion and I was astonished seeing a young pastor at a, at a well-designed and nicely decorated church talking so fervently and forcefully about the subject of abortion. And then I dug a little bit deeper and looked at some of his other series uh, that he's done. And this particular sermon series where he was talking about abortion was a sermon series called Grace and Truth. And so whenever I dug into that and dug into some of the subject matter in there, I was like blown away that somebody was talking about this as kind of like a relevant pastor or something like that. So this podcast is kind of unique where I'm talking to a pastor, which we don't talk to a lot of lead pastors, but specifically, I just wanted to talk about this series that he did. Okay, so we we certainly talked about abortion, but we also talked about God you know, coming full in grace and truth, right? Which is something that I talk about a lot on this show. We also talked about sexuality and how you can kind of cover that right now. But then we also dug into critical theory and kind of what critical theory is doing right now in the church. Guys, I really enjoyed my conversation with this guy because... You know, I'm always pretty skeptical of pastors because it's like, okay, are you just trying to get famous? Are you trying to sell books? You know, are you just going to like bend over and take it someday down the road whenever, you know, the, the culture is breathing down your neck? Who knows with a lot of these guys, but I think this guy's legit. I really, really enjoyed my time and just seeing some of the sermons that he's putting out. I think this is a guy that you should keep your eye on and a guy that you should be supporting. And I don't want to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ryan Visconti, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, Kyle. Thank you. Great to be with you. Hey, you know what? I haven't had a whole lot of pastors on here, and I don't know if it's because I scare them with my questions or whatever the thing is, but I have a feeling that we're going to do pretty good today. I have a feeling that we're going to be doing all right because, again, like I told you off air, you're wearing a very, very flamboyant and loud shirt, and I mean that as a compliment, so that means you're a confident guy, so you're not going to be scared by my questions. But the reason that I'm even, you know, I even reached out to you to do this is because a fan of our show actually sent me the Is Abortion a Sin episode or a sermon that you delivered. Uh, to your church earlier this summer. And so that was, at the time, I didn't know this, that was part of a larger series called Grace and Truth. And so really, I want to spend our time today focusing on that series and the ideas that you brought up. But I, I guess a tagline for the series could go something like this. I pulled it off the website. The world says that the truth is relative, but Jesus says his words are the truth. We need God's truth and his grace. Now I'm triggered automatically by reading a sentence like that. Like it, it's hurting my sensibilities. How dare you say that there's anything other than my truth, Ryan? How dare you? Yeah. I mean, we live in this world today that has made truth totally relative. And that's just kind of the woke mindset that, you know, it's not even my right to say what is true because that could somehow offend your sense of what's true. And I've been more cognizant lately just of the need for truth in the world and sensing that people god's people people who are searching for the lord or for answers just all i think people in general are just hungrier than ever for truth and there's a way to deliver truth and grace at the same time so it's not just beating people up with the truth or using it as a weapon 
But really, truth delivered alongside grace is freedom. It's what sets us free, the Bible says. Well, I, I guess the, the part of that, because I hit on that a lot, Ryan, um, just this concept, because we tell guys, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. I feel like the Lamb of God is overemphasized and the Lion of Judah is not emphasized at all. And especially most churches, it's way easier to talk about grace than it is to talk about truth. But the scripture tells us that Jesus comes fully both. He's not 50% one, 50% the other. He's 100% both. So I guess, how do you, just to push a little deeper into that aspect, how do you manage that whenever you have a current flock of millennials and Gen Zers that don't want to be told that something is true because we've bought into the postmodern lie that truth is relative? Yeah, you know, I think back to the, the kind of church I grew up in, very legalistic, lots of rules, lots of judgment. Uh, and, and so then what you saw the last couple of decades, this major pendulum swing towards overemphasizing grace. And in some ways that needed to happen. We know we're saved by grace, not by works. And it's a gift, right? To know that God loves me no matter what I do, that he accepts me no matter what I do. But then I, I've seen a lot of churches have started to shy away from preaching the truth boldly. And now I think we need to kind of bring that back to a, a bit of balance and in the world today where Gen Z millennials are increasingly just being told from universities, at the workplace, uh, sensitivity training, you know, saying, you know, you, you can't tell somebody that they're wrong because they're not necessarily wrong. They have their own version of truth. Well, that just flies completely in the face of what Jesus says. He says, I am the truth, not a truth. Uh, not my own truth. He says, I am the truth and no one comes to the father except by me. So if Jesus says that he's either crazy, a liar, or he is telling the truth and we've got to decide how we're going to view him. Yeah. That's C.S. Lewis's trilemma, which I, I heard someone even the other day were adding things to it. It's like, no, he could have just been wrong. It's like, ah, don't add to the trilemma. It's a trilemma. Yeah. One. Right. But uh, before we really dig into some of the sermons that you delivered during that series, this is just a generic question about why would you even go into hard subjects? Okay. So whenever I got your, your abortion series and I was listening to it, you know, it reminded me of some series that I've, or sermons that I heard Matt Chandler give back in the day. And Matt Chandler is kind of scaring me with some of the critical race theory things. He's kind of pulling into some of his sermon content. I got to be paying really close attention to that over the years to come. But why go into the hard subjects? Because you know, the drill as a pastor now, on how to keep butts in the seats. Never ask about money. Talk about sex once a year. Don't ever mention demons. And definitely don't talk about stuff that's going to make me uncomfortable. So more pastors uh, don't should be doing this, but they just don't really want to go near it. So I guess, why do you wade into those waters? Why is, this an, why is that important? Well, for a while, I think a lot of churches followed the seeker-sensitive kind of saddleback Rick Warren philosophy of doing ministry, the the uh, Willow Creek kind of uh, secret sensitive church. Like don't make church threatening, make it very accessible and easy and, and safe and comfortable for people to come. And that's, that's one of the things I heard a lot when I was be first becoming a pastor was, Hey, like help people stay comfortable. Don't push them outside of their comfort zone. And maybe there was a, a time when that made sense. I don't know, but I think that worked maybe for a season, but now we have a different reality that we're facing. I think of the world we live in today as being more like wartime conditions than peacetime conditions. The, the stakes have been ramped up. 
culture is becoming increasingly at odds with Christianity. So when I think about preaching to my church, I'm thinking these are Christians who they, they live in a world that they're being constantly bombarded with all these different ideologies, messages at work, messages in school. And they're starting, even Christians are starting to wonder, am I even allowed to believe what the Bible says anymore? Am I even allowed to think that? Or are the thought police going to come along and arrest me? Am I going to get fired mm-hmm. if I say what the Bible says? Am I am I actually right? Or, or maybe I'm just closed-minded. And I, I have sensed over the last years, people just becoming less certain about what they believe. And so I started feeling convicted more lately the last year. And I'm kind of wired this way anyway to, to be direct and bold, but people need the truth and they actually want it. There are people who will not receive it. There are people who do not want to be pushed out of their comfort zone, but the majority of people want the truth. So I think now more than ever, churches need to teach the truth and teach it boldly. Because if I can't, as a pastor, preach the truth with boldness and confidence, how am I supposed to expect, you know, Joe Sixpack to go out to work on Monday and actually live as a Christian? If I can't be bold in church, how is he supposed to do it at the job site? Right. And the, and the worst case scenario for a lot of these people is being called a name. Right. I mean, for these people that they, they don't want to stand up in school and they don't want to stand up at their workplace and say, hey, uh, this whole like struggle session session that you're putting me through right now is is not right. And and certainly they don't want to lean on the Bible because the Bible is just an amalgamation of a bunch of patriarchal, you know, horrific mm-hmm. stories uh, that were just made up, you know, hundreds of years after Jesus died. Apparently, that's what we're being told to believe. But I, I think the thing that is also very important here is most people aren't seeing boldness from their pastors, which is exactly why I asked you about these hard subjects, because it's like. I've been begging pastors because there's a pastor of a enormous church, perhaps the largest church in the country right down the road from me. And he simply will not talk about tough subjects. He won't talk about critical race theory. He won't talk about fundamentalist Islam. He won't talk about transgenderism. And all the while his flock is confused about how to think biblically about these things, which the onus is on them to kind of figure it out. Right. But again, as a pastor, it's like, you're going to have to give an account someday for how you shepherded your flock. I'm not. Like if I go to XYZ church, like I don't I don't have to go in there and be like, oh, I'm gonna have to give an account for me not calling out the pastor that one day. The onus is on you. So I think that really dovetails nicely into the very first sermon that you delivered in that series called Tough and Tender. And it's really focusing around how we need God's truth and grace. You know, we love the grace part. It's like our favorite thing, right? Because it's so easy to understand. The truth part kind of sucks. We don't like that as much. So can you kind of give us an idea of what you said in that sermon? And then we'll dig a little bit more into it. Yeah. And and I just want to give credit to Mark Driscoll. Like I heard him use that phrase years ago that Jesus is both tough and tender. And it really resonated with me. And I think it's a a totally different way to think about being a Christian. When When I was growing up as a young teenager in church, I got, I got presented with this idea that Christian men are supposed to be like nice, sweet boys who don't get in fights, who don't argue, who don't yell, raise their voices. That, and really it's kind of an emasculated version of Christianity that was you know presented to me and it never really resonated with me. I, I'm not putting people down who maybe it does resonate with them, but I was kind of like, hey, where's where's the the Jesus I see in the Bible who's flipping over tables and making a whip? you know, to drive the money changers out of the temple. So there's got to be, it's kind of like these two sides of Jesus and one doesn't get emphasized enough in this current age. And what we see in the Bible is that Jesus tends to be very tender 
towards the brokenhearted. And that's, that's good for all of us, even as guys. Like There are times when I'm broken and my spirit is crushed. And the Bible says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And really that comes out of us in humility, coming to him and saying, I can't do this on my own. I need you humbling myself, knowing that if I humble myself, no matter how bad I've blown it, Jesus will comfort me and he'll lift me up. Sometimes we all need that. On the other hand, he is tough towards those who are hard hearted and particularly the religious hard hearted. And there's a lot of those types of people uh, in churches as well. All across America, there's a lot of judgy, hard hearted, critical Christians who are looking to put people down and look down their nose on other sinners. And man, Jesus has this way. When you're hard-hearted, uh, out of love, he's not afraid to bring the hammer down and uh, help soft, tenderize you up a little bit, right? And he does it out of love, honestly, because sometimes we have, we have to get broken down so he can build us back up. Yeah, I think you, you brought up something that's interesting, and I have a lot of guys that are kind of more in the re- reformed category, right? And I yeah. kind of like to poke fun at them because yeah. I align with a lot of things that they believe, but then I'm like, guys, guys, do you realize that you know over your IPAs and through your mustaches, you've been arguing for the last five hours about three words in the Greek? Like, yeah. is this is this moving the needle? right now. And it's like, it's like, we're, we're missing out on, you know, John 13, 34, 35. Like we're going to be defined by our love for one another because we've got to be right on this theological issue. But there is a line with everything, pastor. I mean, there's a line where your theology has to be right somewhere. So I guess for you in, in that, you know, trying to coalesce tough and tender, where is that line for people? Like, where's that line where it's like, okay, here's all the salvific stuff. Here's the other crap that we're just going to figure out later who is right. Once we get to heaven, we'll clink our glasses together and figure it out. What's that line? Well, I think this is a really helpful leadership framework. So for just kind of a side, side note, I think it's related. Anyone who's leading a business, anyone who might be a ministry leader, Uh, When you think about leading people or interacting with people, the way I uh, uh, respond to people has a lot to do with how uh, they how they present their challenges and their issues to me in terms of that tough and tender mindset. Like some people, they come and they are they're they're broken hearted. They're humble. They're asking for help. Those are the people, even if they've made a mistake or they've blown it. Man, I want to respond like Jesus and be gentle the way that I would want to receive mercy as well. But sometimes, you know, as a a pastor who has a staff that I lead, you also deal with people who are hard headed, they're stubborn, they're defiant. Those are the times when it is justifiable to crack some skulls. And whether you're a business leader or a ministry leader, man, that's what Jesus was doing. Like when, when Peter uh, stepped out of line and started swinging swords in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus rebuked him. That was a tough rebuke. But then later after the resurrection, you saw Jesus gently and kindly restored him in a state of brokenness. So I think that's a helpful framework to have. Uh, when it comes to issues of doctrine, you know, we really... I do think need to think more big picture about primary versus secondary issues. I, I have a lot of guys who are reformed friends as well. And I admire a lot about guys in that camp. And I actually, in a lot of ways, am drawn to that way of thinking, but it's because it's because I think in a lot of ways, uh, I want to figure things out and quantify them and qualify them and define them. And, uh, Yet sometimes people get too caught up in secondary details and issues of doctrine that truthfully, we just can't always know definitively the the right or wrong, you know, position on a lot of these issues. 
Well, and they're, they're not allowing room for anybody else to enter the discussion. So there's a prominent pastor that I hope we'll talk to someday. Um, you know, and I'm going to bring up this issue, but he does not want to hear a single argument against abortion that doesn't have scripture involved in it. And I, I understand why he thinks that way, because without the, the Bible, without knowing that we don't have this inherent idea of the Imago Dei, we don't have that from, from anywhere else, right? We don't get that from the writings of, of Marx or Nietzsche or, or, you know, anybody else. We get that from the Bible, from Genesis. But at the same time, there's, there's a lot of other arguments that will go at someone else's heart. If I try to argue with somebody using only the Bible, and yet they think the Bible is is nonsense. They think the Bible should basically be used to clean up diarrhea. I'm not going to appeal to them making that argument. I maybe need to use philosophy or reason or, or stoicism or something like that to kind of more so get through that. But hey, this is an interview. I feel like I'm doing my own podcast. I want to move on here because I really enjoyed kind of the second sermon that you did in that series as well, where you dealt with godly sexuality which again, how dare you, you bigot. How dare you tell people to how to act sexually? What's wrong with you? But to kind of give our listeners a little bit of an overview on what you covered with godly sexuality. Yeah, you know, the world is doing this thing right now called choice architecture, where they say you either affirm homosexuality, transgenderism, etc., or else you're a hater or you're a bigot, right? It's either my way or I'm going to slander you and your character. And so we're coming at it from, you know, step one, how did God design sexuality? He created one man and one woman to enjoy sex in marriage. And uh, that's it. In marriage, it's a good thing. It's a gift. Outside of marriage, although it can be pleasurable, it leads to destruction and pain and disappointment. Now, the devil, he takes, he always does this. The devil counterfeits the good things that God created as gifts and he twists them and perhaps in no other area more than in sexuality. That's why throughout history, idol worship, all kinds of false religions, they always go back to twisted sexuality. So here, I think this is one of the issues that weighs on Christians maybe more than anything right now, because even if you were raised Christian or or whatever, you probably got someone in your family or a coworker who identifies as gay uh, or one of the letters. And you're thinking, well, man, how do I, how do I be kind to that person and love that person without compromising my beliefs, especially when the world is telling me that makes me a hater uh, or a bigot if I don't affirm them. And so that's where I go, Hey, it's not really about me, my opinion, or what I think it's about how God designed the world It's what God says. God created sex between one man and one woman in marriage, one natural born man and one natural born woman in marriage. God created us to have gender identities. They're not fluid. Uh, they're fixed at birth. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is causing so much confusion with Christians. Uh, they're wondering, you know, what should they say about this? What should they, should they go to their cousin's gay wedding? If they, you know, want to be in relationship with that family member, how do they handle it going forward? And I think that's something that we, we really need to talk about more in churches that um, it's okay for us to be different than the world and to not affirm sexual sin, even though all day long the world will say, hey, this is okay. Love is love. It it's, doesn't matter you know, what, what it looks like as long as two consensual adults. We as Christians, though, we come along, we say it does matter because God has made it very clear that when you practice sexuality outside of his framework, it will hurt you. It will lead to your own pain. So whether that's 
homosexuality, a guy looking at pornography on the internet, uh, sleeping with his girlfriend and taking advantage of her rather than marrying her, whatever it is, if it's out of God's framework, he says it's not good. And he's not trying to take away your fun. He's trying to protect you from pain. So churches, I mean, we need, we need to be more bold on this issue. And I'll be honest, even as a pastor, I get a little bit of those just butterflies in my stomach getting ready to talk about something like this because you're like, man, this is going to step on some toes. I'm going to get some emails, probably going to have some people leave the church. And every time I do talk about it, those things happen. But as a Christian, not just as a pastor, I've got to be committed to, to, to teaching the truth, to speaking the truth out of love for other people. Well, and that's one of the things that I, I really love your answer there because we've seen a cultural shift where I think it was uh, Hemingway that was like, you know, how do things change gradually and then all at once, right? It was kind of, it's something like that. I, I think I messed the quote mm -hmm. up, but it used to be, hey, just leave us alone. Let us love who we love and just, you know, stay, keep your morality out of my bedroom. And now it's like, you will watch me make out with my boyfriend and you will like it and you will celebrate yep. it and you will post a rainbow on Facebook. Facebook. If not, you're a bigot, you're a horrible person. But it's this whole attitude of celebrating sin and when I have people come to me and ask me, should I go to my brother's wedding, his gay wedding? Should I go to my friend from high school's gay wedding? I'm realizing there's no pastor for them to ask. They're asking a dude that talks to them through their podcast app and their phone. And basically what I tell them is you wouldn't go to another celebration of sin anywhere else in the world. If your father was a raging and violent alcoholic, you would not go to a five hour celebration of the fact that he does those things. So why in the world would you affirm that? But at the same time, I say, you better be the first couple you and your wife or whatever that offers to have them over to your house for dinner after they get married. That's how you love on those people, but you don't celebrate their sin. That's what I would say. But I guess, Pastor, what would you say to the churches? Because I was listening to a podcast today where there were two Christians. One used to be gay and now, you know, he's celibate and he'll be celibate for the rest of his life. And then we have this other guy who is openly homosexual, that is homosexuality affirming, and he affirms all of transgenderism and all those different things. What do you say to those ministries that just want to affirm these people because they say you can't love them unless you accept them? Yeah. And I've heard many prominent pastors pretty much promoting that idea. I think that these churches, they start with the right intentions, thinking that they're going to be loving and welcoming. And there's even times when I've really wrestled with this. How, do, how can I be loving and welcoming to those who might not otherwise feel like they fit in here? But there is quickly a point where you cross a line from being warm and welcoming to being actually unintentionally hurtful because you deceive people and you rob them from the opportunity to fully pick up their cross and follow Jesus. And I'll just use a little bit of a personal story. Years ago, I remember when I was younger, I had a lesbian couple in my church and I wanted to make them feel loved and welcomed. And so I just kept bending over backwards, trying to make them feel comfortable and uh, let them kind of get as involved as they could without violating any real clear boundaries. And I'll just say short version is it ended up blowing up in my face. And I realized out of that, that I should have been more direct and upfront with them even more clearly that in order to follow Jesus, you have got to lay aside all sexual sin. You've got to lay aside sin and follow him in general. You've got to just, you got to die to yourself and what you want, pick up your cross and follow him. And really, if, if they choose to walk out the door at that point, that's between them and God. It, it, hopefully my prayer is that they would choose Jesus over their sexual preferences. 
And so churches are trying to reach lost people. They're wanting to make the doors, you know, as wide open as possible. But then what happens is people come in who are LGBT. They're looking oftentimes not for the truth, but they're looking for a church to affirm them in their right. sin. And I get that all the time being a younger guy. People think, oh, you must be affirming because you're young. And so you're probably cool with me, right? Like, and I'm like, no, man, I believe the Bible. It doesn't, believe, doesn't matter if I'm 36 years old or whatever. Uh, I'm talking about what God says here. So I, I know it's actually in people's, it's for people's own good that they know up front, hey, in order to get involved here, in order to serve, in order to in, get in any kind of leadership role, you cannot have ongoing unrepentant sin in your life. So I would encourage pastors, you got to actually be more upfront about that. And I've been hearing from church planters in urban areas around the country, large cities that tend to be very secular, they're learning that more and more they need to be clear and upfront with people. Uh, otherwise it just ends up blowing up in their faces on the back end. Well, and the funny thing about that is I don't feel like there's a win anywhere for anybody. And you really elucidate, elucidated that perfectly. Cause I remember when Carl Lentz, you know, before his fall from grace, he, he couldn't bring himself to say that homosexuality was wrong and was a sin because he's on Oprah and he's in front of mm -hmm. Kata Couric and he's, you know, he's on the view or whatever he, he was at, whatever he was doing at the time. And it's like, who's your target audience for this? Like, yeah. you're, you're, are you trying to lie to people to, to get them into the kingdom? Like, because if they ever find out that you're a fraud, which here we are, then, then they're going to feel like their faith is somehow at fault. Like, look at all the people that are having attacks of faith uh, right now because they were saved at a Ravi Zacharias event. And they're like, was I really saved? I mean, this guy was a horrible sexual predator. Like, and now they're having this inner dialogue about whether or not they're saved, which is ridiculous because of course they are, if, if they've actually accepted Christ and became a disciple of him. But, but anyway, I'm, I'm kind of getting off topic, but that really goes into, again, with Carl Lentz, the abortion issue came up with him and he couldn't just say, it was a softball question. It's like, here you go. Hit this one out of the park. Is yeah. murdering a human being and stamping out the Imago Dei sin? Or is it not? Is there an easier question for a pastor aside from does God exist? But you did an entire sermon series or entire sermon um, on abortion being sinful. But you talked about it in a lot of different ways, which you know I'll, we'll get into the political side of it here in just a second. But why do an entire sermon on this topic? Why not just mention it? Because some pastors, they'll just whoop, They'll just drop it in, you know, for 30 seconds here or there a few times a year because they don't want to make anyone mad. And then I guess why go so hard, right? Why not do the whole like, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips kind of thing to make sure nobody gets offended? Yeah. You know, the first thing that tends to happen as a pastor when you talk about abortion is you think about the people who've had abortions. And I, you know, a lot of pastors, they just really sensitive hearts and there's nothing wrong with that. They start thinking, you know, man, there's people in my congregation, they've had abortions and I don't want to make them feel ashamed and I don't want to make them feel crushed. Uh, but what I have found over the years is the more I talk about abortion, the more I get messages from women who've had abortions who say, please talk about this. Please be direct about it because it's so painful, it causes so much damage and we don't want anyone else to go through what we've been through. So while I always want to let anyone who's had an abortion or a guy who maybe encouraged his girlfriend to have an abortion know there is forgiveness for that sin and God can show you mercy for that. Absolutely. Uh, I want to be really clear and upfront that 
This is murder. There is no and, if, or buts about it. And the world tries to justify it in all kinds of ways, talking about when life begins versus when it does. They want to talk about different circumstances. What about if you were raped? What about if there's a, a deficiency, a birth defect? Um, and at the end of the day, it is clear cut murder, violating one of the 10 commandments, thou shall not kill. It's got to be one of the most clear cut issues for Christianity. And I, I don't understand why uh, so many Christians allow themselves to vote for pro-choice politicians who are furthering the cause of abortion in our own country. Almost a million babies in America alone aborted per year. And Christians are sitting around debating secondary issues about immigration and tax policy. It's like, if we can't get the abortion thing right, we deserve, in, honest, in my honest opinion, we deserve God's judgment in a lot of ways if we can't get something that basic right. Well, it's even nefarious inside the church, Ryan, because even guys that I like, that I respect, guys that listen to this podcast, they've said things to me before like, well, you know, I'm very, very pro-life, but gosh, if the woman was raped, I just don't know. Or, you know, if if the, the woman's life was at risk, which they don't realize is a silly argument because you don't have to kill the baby to save the mother's life. You can try to deliver baby. You can try to save both lives. And sometimes that's just not possible. But the thing about it is, is like, this is, in a per, this is a pervasive attitude, even in a conservative part of an affluent city in the middle of Oklahoma. Right. Yeah. And so just think about it as you get closer to the blue centers of, of different big cities and things like that. Even Christians, they, they think they're being loving by saying ah, we should probably stamp out that baby, because why would we want to do the injustice to that woman of making her? You know, she's 13 years old and was raped by her uncle. We want her to carry that baby. What I would do is I would give them two envelopes. One of them has an ultrasound image of that baby and one an ultrasound image of a baby from a loving family. And this is their fourth, fourth child and have them tell me which one was the rape baby. Because if they can't figure it out beyond a shadow of a doubt, I don't want to hear it. But again, most pastors don't want to go that hard. And the thing that I was shocked by, I was honestly shocked, Ryan, when you talked about voting, not, not just a second ago, in the sermon, because most pastors, they'll get real, real ballsy, right? They'll start beating their chest and they're saying, it's murder and it's this and it's that. And they want to talk about all these issues, but they won't take that logical next step and say, if you vote for somebody that is pro baby murder, you're doing a wrong thing. You're doing a sinful thing. It's sin by fiat type of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess, why did you take that extra step, which is to say you shouldn't be voting for anybody that supports this? Yeah. To me, it's just the logical conclusion in saying what needs to be said. Nobody wants to have their pastor get up and say, vote for this candidate specifically. That would probably leave a bad taste in most people's mouth. And you know, you're all grown adults can make your own decisions who you should vote for. But I do feel like it's okay to say you should not vote for XYZ candidate based on that person's uh, support for abortion rights. You know, pro murder of children. And, you know, the truth is that as last I checked, there was only one pro life Democrat in all of the US Congress left, I believe in Texas. And uh, up until recently, it was, you know, only a handful before that. So I would get up and say, you know, you don't have to vote for my, you know, favorite candidate. You don't even have to vote for one particular party. But as a Christian who knows abortion is murder, how are you going to vote for a pro-choice candidate? And then people will bring up these issues like, well, yeah, there's all these other important human rights issues and matters of loving people. It's not just abortion. Yeah, but abortion is the one thing where a one out of every one baby aborted dies. 
You can talk about immigration policy and, and tax policy and social programs all day and debate the intricacies of that. And let's just be honest, most of it's more complex than I could even wrap my mind around. But as a simple man, I look at abortion and I go, if babies are getting aborted, one out of every one of those babies lose the opportunity to live life live for the Lord and make a difference in this world. If that baby was conceived in rape, that baby does not deserve to be punished for the sins of his or her father. If that uh, mother's life is in danger, like you said, the medical procedure is to deliver the baby baby early, not mm-hmm. intentionally kill the baby. And those instances are very rare. So in real life, in real life, when you look at the stats, the majority, and it's like 95% plus, closer to 97% of the times when babies are murdered, it really comes down to convenience. Babies are aborted for convenience. It will affect my mental health. Well, what does that really mean? It's going to bum me out to have to have a baby. It's going to it's going to affect my socioeconomic well-being. What does that mean? It means it's going to in- interfere with my job, my career to have a baby. So people are using abortion as birth control, and it is just unacceptable for anyone who believes that the Bible is God's word. Uh, I think we can't vote as Christians for people who are pro-choice. Well, when people say they're worried about the health of the mother, that's a nefarious thing they're doing with language because you just brought it up there. Well, there's physical health, but there's also psychological health. There's yep. financial health. What kind of health are we discussing at this point? And and again, yes, it's people are going to think I told you to say that because I say that all the time. It's about convenience. I don't know who the dad is. You know, I'm in college right now. Now's just not really a good time. And so they're expecting all of us to go, oh, okay, I get it. You should definitely murder that child. It makes total sense. You're busy with class. Okay, I totally get it. So, but I really think it comes down to a seared conscience right and mm-hmm. you talk about this with political uh, with political candidates if if that person can't surmise through their own judgment that what's growing inside of a of a woman's stomach my wife is pregnant right now right what's growing inside of her stomach is not worthy of life and protection then why should we trust that person's judgment on tax policy or immigration policy or foreign policy why should we trust it because they have a seared conscience Like why, why would we ever go that route? And a lot of it is downstream from a lot of the things we're seeing change at the foundation of the country, which goes into the last sermon you did in that series, which was talking about critical theory. And you specifically pitted critical theory against Christianity and critical theory. And, you know, when you go back to the Frankfurt school and back to Marxism, those are the things that are really foundationally tearing at what we're trying to do as a country and as a people. So I guess just most generically, why even take on the concept of critical theory from the pulpit? Well, it has permeated all throughout culture. And I, I don't even think I realized until recent years how it was at the root of so much of the, the culture war taking place between Christianity and the secular world that we live in, tearing down the nuclear family, tearing down those in positions of authority, um, fighting against biblical, let's call them Judeo-Christian values, Really, all this stuff is stemming out of critical theory, and it's a very mixed, complicated bag uh, that makes it a little hard for Christians to wade through because there are some things within it that smell like they could be legit. For example, if you knew about, you know, let's say um, someone who's a minority facing legitimate uh, injustice, you should care about that. Right. That's obviously something I, I would care about and it's and I would be upset about it. 
So they take things like that. Critical theory takes a race issue like that and it intertwines it with uh, sexuality and gender identity and all, you know, rebellion against authority. So this is a really complex uh, it was actually a really hard sermon to to condense down to 40 minutes or so. Uh, but I think Christians need to be aware of of critical theory, which includes critical race theory, and how that is what's shaping so much of the message behind all the TV shows we're watching, the sensitivity training, all the power struggles at work uh, where people are playing the victim cards constantly. And so it's it's a big problem right now. So we'll get more into some of the kind of tendrils that come out of a sermon like that, but let's just start at the most basic level. And this is an almost impossible thing for people to do. Just define critical theory for us. Yeah. It's basically a a power system, which says that those who are in positions of power are oppressors. It pits everyone as either an oppressor or oppressed. And it seeks to tear down those in positions of a power who are oppressors and replace them with those who are oppressed. Critical theory also includes uh, a concept called intersectionality, which is where you really hit on all these uh, characteristics um, that, that identify us. For example, intersectionality would be like the ultimate oppressor is a white, male, straight, cisgender, Christian man. So like I would be Darth Vader. I'd be the ultimate evil villain according to critical theory. And so this is where all this stuff about white privilege comes from. All this stuff about the patriarchy is coming from is critical theory. And critical – it's basically saying that we need to take guys like me, tear them down from their positions of authority, uh, and then replace them with oppressed people groups. Well, oppressed people groups – are the, the opposite of basically what I am. It'd be a lesbian, uh, let's say non-white, transgendered, immigrant. Um, that, that would be like the ultimate oppressed person according to intersectionality. And that's why a lot of guys, this might make more sense when you think about it this way. You always see people playing these, these victim cards like, well, as a person of color who's gay and also from a you know inner city, why are they throwing all these things down? Well, according to intersectionality and critical theory, the more oppressed you are, the more power you're supposed to be given, the more valid your opinion should become, the more we should all listen to you, the more we should step aside and empower you. And so what it does is it actually promotes victimhood in people. And we can all see how destructive that is to go around telling people that they're victims raising kids to see themselves as victims. Well, critical theory rewards that because the more of a victim you are, the more power you now have in society. Uh, so it, it's affecting a lot of the way that we interact with people in the workplace and in general. Yeah, not just the workplace, but also in church because mm-hmm. I feel like Christians are so gullible to critical theory and specifically critical race theory, especially because of all the nonsense that went down, you know, a, a one yeah. summer ago, but they're also they're very naive on this subject. I, I was sitting down with a, a good buddy of mine. He's a, you know, he's a smart guy. He and I went to college together and this was maybe a year, year and a half ago. And I mentioned the word Marxism and he went blank. He had no idea what I was talking about. He had never heard of it, never heard of Marxism. And so after I kind of like, you know, got my bearings back. I tried to explain it in basic terms. And I'm like, man, this is a guy with kids and he's in the church right now. And, you know, 
if the if the pastor started spouting off critical race theory nonsense, he's going to be caught completely flat footed. He might feel uncomfortable, but he's, but he's not going to know what to do. So I guess mm. why are Christians so gullible and naive on this subject? How did we get here? Well, it's because it it plays off of a lot of legitimate Christian concepts. But like everything, the devil, he he's smart. He counterfeits things. He twists things up in a way that he confuses us between truth and, and lies. And so, for example, Jesus, he legitimately comes to free the captive. He legitimately comes to bring justice to the oppressed. And so as a Christian who believes the Bible is true, you hear something like that and you go, yeah, sweet. So when people start talking about critical race theory and they say, hey, man, we got to support oppressed people groups. It's really easy to say, yeah, let's do it without even thinking to ask more questions. Well, what do you mean by oppressed? And what do we need to do to help them? What? Well, because critical theory sometimes identifies legit problems, but it doesn't offer legit biblical solutions. So there could be legitimate problems of race, racial injustice in, in our society, let's say. But critical theory would say the answer to that is to tear it all down and replace those who are in power with those who have been oppressed. Well, that is antithetical to biblical uh, principle and teaching, which talks about honoring authority. Jesus really came to build up. You never see Jesus build, uh, tearing anything down. He builds up. He imp- it's hard to build up. It's hard to improve upon. It's easy to tear a house down and burn it all to the ground. Uh, it's hard to improve something that needs some work. But that's really where we have to do the hard work is we have to improve. We have to work a little. And then at the same time, Christianity says we are never going to fix all of our problems on this earth. We can try and we should try to do good, but we can never stop all evil and injustice as long as humanity exists on the earth. Critical theory would say, no, 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 we've got to do whatever it takes to end all suffering. Even if that means we've got to tear the whole system down, burn it all to the ground, that's what we'll do in the name of ending suffering and injustice. The funny thing is when you ask proponents of critical theory and critical race theory, well, what do you do when you, once you've empowered the oppressed, what stops them from becoming the oppressors? None of them have an answer for that. They'll they'll all be like, well, we never really thought about that. So it's pretty, it's pretty funny. Well, cause that's what utopianism is in this kind of worldview. There are no limiting principles. And what they don't realize is the revolution will always eat its own because it has to, because, and you have all these people, you know, they posted the back the black square on Instagram last year. And, you know, they, they knelt down and posted a picture with their mask on. And then uh, someone finds a off color joke that they said when they were seven years old. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden it's like, no, 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 don't kill me, please, please don't kill me. It's like, sorry, the revolution has to eat its own. But I, I really appreciate you letting us c- kind of go through all of those uh, sermons that were in that series. And guys, I do have that in the show notes for you. So you can check that out. But I do want to transition a little bit as we work ourselves towards the end of the interview here. Uh, again, as I mentioned off the top of the show, I kind of gave gave my hand away a little bit talking about the Lion of Judah. So for you specifically, if you had to say and be honest, because you have to be honest because you're talking on a podcast, it's illegal to lie. In the last year, in the last 12 months of speaking before your congregation, have you mentioned the Lamb of God more or the Lion of Judah more? Man, I don't know if I've really even mentioned either of them, but I can see you know, why you you would more emphasize the lamb than the lion. There is kind of this uh, feeling that when you talk about the lion of Judah, it's almost like, well, oh, you know, is that kind of just uh, chauvinistic, macho kind of thinking? And it's like, 
No, I mean, we're really supposed to see both those sides of who Jesus Christ is uh, at the same time. Really, you can't appreciate either without seeing them both at the same time. Yeah. And so again, that goes to the whole concept of grace and truth. And, you know, I had a buddy actually send me a screen recording of this. So shout out to Matt Grassmeyer for doing this for me a while ago. He went to a very famous Bible app and he searched for lamb of God in the plan section. And he just scrolled, just kept flicking for two minutes. Lamb of God, lamb of God, lamb of God, lamb of God. Then he searched for lion of Judah. Six plans popped up. Three of them were mine. Right. And so it's like, it's something that is not really discussed. Now, this is why I think it's so. So I'd, I'd like to hear if you agree with this or if you have another explanation. I think the Lamb of God is very digestible, very easy to understand. The idea of this somehow white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, not a Middle Eastern carpenter Jew, going around and like kissing people on the tips of their noses and giving them high fives, that seems really, really nice and really, really easy. The Lion of Judah you know, clearing the temple, as we saw in Matthew, I think it was Matthew 21, you know, clearing out the temple, right? You know, premeditated aggression and anger, right? Doesn't sound very Christ-like, you know, coming back with a tattoo on his leg and his robe dipped in blood. And, you know, you can look at it as an allegory, but, you know, a sword coming out of his mouth type of a thing. I think it's because the Lion of Judah is just way too scary. And most pastors are pansies. Am I wrong? You're you're, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. The the world that we live in, it likes the soft, sweet, tender-hearted, hair-flipping Jesus, kissing babies and hugging hurting people. But that this is actually one of the biggest problems in American Christianity is that not enough Christians see Jesus as their king and as the commander of heaven's armies. This is why we have so much so many challenges as Christians today actually doing what Jesus says to do, because we think of him as just another buddy who's giving us suggestions about how to live our lives. And in reality, he is the king of all kings. And if we had true respect for who he is and his role as the victorious conquering king of kings, the lion of Judah, we would quickly kneel down in submission and obey every single thing he tells us to do to the best of our ability. And we would still say, thank you for your mercy and grace when we blow it. But we wouldn't be so flippant about, oh yeah, maybe one of these days I'm going to get around to living for Jesus. Oh yeah, maybe one of these days I'm going to stop sinning. I know I need to work on that someday. Well, you're thinking of Jesus like he's your BFF and not like he's your king, like he's your like he's the lion of Judah. And so I think this really, you know, other cultures tend to have a, a better, they, do, they tend to do better um, than we do at recognizing authority and the benefits of authority figures in our lives, both for our blessing and protection. And this is one of the things most missing from American Christianity. It comes from our independent nature, our rebellious streak. It's kind of how our country got its start. You know, we're kind of rebels at heart. And so we don't want anyone telling us what to do, but people need to understand the sooner you submit your life to Christ and recognize him as your King, the better your life is going to be. And the great thing is you're submitting and following a king. You're submitting to and following a king who is victorious. So he leads you into victory in every part of your life. So that's why my encouragement to people do it. Yeah, absolutely. And something you brought up there that made me think about this episode 176 of this podcast. I don't have all my podcasts memorized, but I just get asked about this one constantly. It's called Contemporary Worship Music is for Women and Effeminate Men. And part of the... <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to send that to you later. I think you might enjoy it. But um, part of the thing that I think we've gotten to this place, and I, I go into a long philosophy in a lot of other episodes, but I think specifically contemporary Christian music talks about Jesus 
as if he's our boyfriend. They, yeah. they refer to God as if he's our best friend or if he's our buddy. And so we don't get the right relationship in our brains as to how we should look at the triune God. Because yeah. if someone's a boyfriend, that means they're replaceable. If yeah. someone's your buddy, that means that you can get a new buddy. And that's just not really how this is set up. And I think contemporary worship music that doesn't really focus on the grandeur and, and omni everything of God is not doing us any favors, but specifically to men. Because I've spent my entire life not in church, but when I started going to church as a teenager, looking at the screen and looking at these words, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think I want to sing that. And it took me years to realize, oh, it's because it's homoerotic. Yeah. It's because I'm singing to some Middle Eastern Jew named Jesus about how much I want to embrace them in my arms and cuddle up with them, and it's going to be so fun in the meadow. And so I feel like, and, I, and I've not watched any of your, your church's worship services, so hopefully I'm not offending anybody that's on staff there. But do you feel like that is playing a role? Because guys have responded in a big way to that episode, like, oh my gosh, this has been the problem the whole time, and I didn't realize it. Is there an onus that we need need to be putting on these right-brained artistic worship leaders to be like, hey, consider the men when you're picking your songs? Absolutely. And this is actually a, a subject I'm very passionate about. I preached a series called A Sacrifice of Praise, and a whole sermon was called Worship as Warfare. And I believe that that is a huge issue. And it's one of the reasons why men don't really participate in a lot of churches during the singing and the praising time, because they do feel so ostracized. Not every single church, but a lot of churches, uh, when it comes to music, it's very feminine. It's led by women. And then, or you get these guys on stage who maybe, in, you know, their hearts are pure, but they just kind of have a feminine artistic nature. And it just, it's off-putting right from the get-go. A lot of times. And then you get into the lyrics of some of these songs. I mean, there's there's a song um, by Carrie Job. It's not bad, but it just talks about, I want to sit at your feet, drink from the cup in your hand, lean back against you and breathe, feel your heartbeat. And it's like, bro, I am not singing that. I don't even want my wife singing it. I'll be jealous if my wife sings it. It's, it's ridiculous. And so I, I have made an intentional point to teach men that one, worship is a part of spiritual warfare. You see in Second Chronicles 20, the worship team led the army of Judah and, and, and Israel into battle against the Ammonites. And God used worship to confuse the enemy and destroy the enemy. And so when, when men of God worship, and you can do it with masculinity and with courage and confidence, that scares the devil. So we need to really understand that we need see, I think we need senior pastors who have uh, an understanding of doctrine and biblical theology involved in writing worship songs to keep them kind of on track, right? And this this is something that needs to be addressed in churches. My my thing and I've got music that I've suggested people to. I'll send you that episode so you can check it out, but it's if if you're not leaving a worship session feeling like you could storm the gates of hell. Yeah. Probably wasn't the right type of music for you, but Hey, we've talked about a lot of different things so far in this episode, but as we wrap up here, I like to do something at the end of my interviews. It's a segment called, what would you say to someone that said, so this is lightning round. Okay. So I'm going to start out with, what would you say to someone that said, I'm going to fill in the blank, but you got 30 seconds maximum. And some of these are kind of big topics. So it's just meat and potatoes answers. So you up for it? All right, let's do it. All right, let's get into it. The first one, what would you say to someone that said, Christians should stop worrying about being relevant? On one hand, I want us to be relevant in a way that means we can communicate to the world so that they can digest it. On the other hand, it's okay for us to be 
irrelevant in the sense that we we are going to be different than the world. If we want to make a difference, we've got to be willing to be different. So in I want to communicate my message in a relevant way, but I'm not going to try to cater my message to the world and make it different, trying to make it relevant, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said churches should stop worrying about being relevant? Yeah, churches are going to increasingly become a lighthouse in the darkness. And the darker the world gets, the more people need to see the light of Jesus shining from these churches. That means that we've got to get louder and louder about the truth. And we're always going to bring grace at the same time, but uh, we're going to look increasingly different than the world. So I, I don't really care about having cool graphics and singing you know, cool songs. We, we want to do all that. I don't want to be intentionally kind of out of date or anything, but we're going to stand out and be different than the world more and more as time goes on. All right. Next lightning round question here. What would you say to someone that said, I'm okay with abortion, but only in the case of rape, incest, and potential harm to the mother's health? It's easy for you to say, considering you've already been born. I'm going to go ahead and let you leave it there. That is a very quick answer and a perfect answer. We're going to keep moving on. You're doing great. You're doing a great job. All right. What would you say to someone that said, I'm not replacing the gospel with critical race theory. CRT is just a lens that will help me understand my non-white brothers and sisters. Wow. Yeah. The gospel doesn't need any lenses added to it. Any lens that you use uh, to see your non-white brothers and sisters is actually going to hinder your ability to appreciate the gospel on its own and of its own merit. So it's true for all of us, male or female, Jew or Gentile. The gospel is sufficient in and of itself. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said churches spend too much time on presentation and too little time on discipleship? On presentation? Um, discipleship is obviously important. Jesus told us to go and make disciples, but what we do on the weekends when we have church services and we have, uh, presentations of the gospel via preaching, we have worship, you know, music like that, that's all important as well. So I mean, it's, it's, I would, I guess I would say it like this. I know this isn't very succinct, but it all, it, it all works together. It's all part of the, the process. Okay. Next question here. What would you say to someone that said we should always be skeptical of famous pastors? Yeah, that's just a really pessimistic way to see the world. You know, pastors who become, let's call it church famous, uh, they're just like anybody else. Some of them are great guys and all of them are imperfect human beings. And we live in a world today that is really celebrating, uh, bashing anyone in positions of authority, looking at all leaders skeptically. And that's not the way that the Lord wants us to look at these guys through a skeptical lens, assuming the worst about them. Uh, I think we should believe the best about people until proven otherwise. You heard it here first, guys. Ryan Visconti is a huge Joel Osteen fan. He just said it. He just admitted it to everybody. But hey, we got a couple more here. What would you say to someone that said, the Lion of Judah is scary. I like the lamb better. Ooh, I like the scary Lion of Judah. I'm glad that he's scary. And because he's my Lion of Judah. I love being on the winning team and following Jesus, knowing that he wins. He destroys all evil. He destroys his enemies and he does what I can't accomplish for myself. So I'm so grateful that the lion of Judah is who Jesus is. 
he is scary. And that's why we want to get on the right side of Jesus. You know, it's better to be following him than standing against him. That's right. Get it. All right. Last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said the woke movement will usher in the end of the church in the West? Oh, that's not going to happen there. The woke movement is just the most recent twisted ideology, but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So it's going to, in some ways, separate the sheep from the goats. That might happen, uh, I would say. But uh, at the end of the day, it's just another twisted form of lies that's just cata- it's camouflaged in niceties and heart, heart-tugging uh, concepts. But really, at the end of the day, the church is going to keep pushing forward, especially churches that preach the truth. All right. Well, we covered a lot of subjects here, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Dude, I'm so thankful just to be able to chat with you. And I love that you're doing this podcast, encouraging guys to be uh, confident and courageous and stand up for what's right. And there needs to be more of that in the world. We're doing our best here. Ryan Visconti, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Pastor Ryan Visconti. I really enjoyed my time that I spent with him. This is a guy that I think you should definitely be checking out as we continue to move on because there's a lot of pastors that are following the way of the woke, and this guy's not going to be that. But before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness, and specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got links to the entire sermon series called Grace and Truth. That's what we spent this entire episode talking about. Also, I've got a link to the Generation Church website and also to Ryan's Instagram so you can check him out there. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And also you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.